0: I think that this passage in Ephesians is probably one of the most encouraging passages in Scripture, because it lays out all kinds of, of different uh, aspects of what it means to be a child of God. And as you have a passage, and you're going to attempt to preach on it, you, you usually have several different ways you can go. In this particular passage, we could concentrate on what does it mean to be dead in your sins? Or what's the significance of us all having been followers of the prince, Satan? Or or how significant is it for us that we are currently seated with Christ by virtue of what he has done. And then there's the biggie that, that when most people take this passage, they would camp on, which is, we are saved by grace alone. Okay. All wonderful topics. All different things. And uh, I want you to hold your place there because we're going to, we're going to take off in, in a direction. But then we're eventually going to come back to this Ephesians passage. So please don't think that I've forgotten it as we are going along here. You know, uh, a few weeks ago, Kyle did just a wonderful job on Easter of uh, applying what Easter is and the significance of the resurrection. So that's, that's fairly recent in our memory and something that uh, and we can really camp on and, and hold on to. Let's look at a couple of those Easter passages and, and see if there's something for us there. The first one, and we are going to go to all kinds of different passages today, and so you're welcome to turn to them if you want. But if not, I'll be reading each one of them. And so um, you can your best to just kind of understand, okay, what is this trying to teach us, and, and what's the significance here? first one is Acts 13.29. Familiar to all of us. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. He was dead. When they took him off the cross, my guess is the the temperature had begun to drop in his body. There was no question on their part when they took him off the cross and they walked him to the tomb that he was, in fact, dead. A little before that in Acts uh, chapter 10, verses 39 and 40, it says, And we are witnesses of all that they did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him the third day and made him to appear. Listen to that again. And we're witnesses of all that they did, both in the country of the Jews and Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. First question for you is, where would we be without those two little words? It says they put him to death. But God raised him on the third day. I can tell you where we'd be because Scripture tells us that. If you go to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, it says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. That's a pretty significant difference. Those two words have made all the difference between us still trapped and responsible for our sins and going to be judged and condemned because of our sins, or being raised to life and no longer being under the condemnation of those sins. I obviously, as a dentist, was a science major in college. I married an English and literature major. Okay? We don't look at things exactly the same. Um, Jeff, you know, he, he goes downstairs and, and is teaching through Psalms, as he's going to do today, and he comes up with all of these examples and, and all of the richness of the, the language and, and the nuances. And I told him, I said, you know, you're doing this panoramic kind of thing. When I go to scripture, I'm building a building, okay? I want the blueprints. What it reminds me of, and this is only going to fit for those of you who are old. You remember Joe Friday from Dragnet? He said, the facts, ma'am, just the facts. That's kind of how I live my life. And yet, even as the science major. I have to understand the significance and the importance of a conjunction. I didn't, you know, I have to remember what it, with Jeff, it rolls off his tongue. For me, the, the conjunction is, but, and it makes all the difference in the world, Some of you have heard this story, but I'm going to tell you a story that happened in excess of 25 years ago. I had a nephew who was getting married. So Barb and I went to his wedding, and another person invited to the wedding is my best friend. I've talked about him before. His name is Sam. He's a mechanic. He used to be in Minnesota. He now lives in Texas. And so Sam and I are sitting... We had been in the same men's group where I had been discipled, and uh, I would tell you that Sam is the finest amateur theologian I have ever met in my entire life, hands down. And my cousin sat down with us. My cousin is just a wonderful guy, a believer, uh, in spite of the fact that he's a lawyer. Um, But he lives in the Chicago area, his theology in mind would be a little different, but just a wonderful, wonderful guy. And we're sitting there, and Sam and I were having some theological discussion, and Doug entered in and he said, Hey, what do you think the two most important words in the Bible are? And, you know, he caught us both off guard. Uh, and we kind of looked at each other and thought for a few minutes. And he said, because he had an agenda of where he wanted to go with it, he said, the two most important words are Jesus cried, or Jesus wept rather. And, and he was going on talking about the humanity of, of Jesus. And we had the reception. Okay, This will tell you a little bit what, about what Sam is like. Nine months, months later, I walked into his shop and he says, hey, I got the answer. (laughs) You got the answer to what? He said, I got the answer to the question your cousin asked. I said, what question did my cousin ask of you? He said, well, we were at Kenny's wedding. And he wanted to know the two most important words in the Bible. And I, quite honestly, had kind of lost sight of that conversation, and he says, the answer is, but God. And so we had this wonderful discussion, but it helped me as I was reading through scripture to understand the significance of those two little three-letter words. So let's look at some places where but God makes a significant difference. The first one is 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. It says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So, we would be absolutely overwhelmed by the temptation around us. I mean, think about it. As believers, it already is amazing how much of an influence it has on it. But we would be absolutely overwhelmed by that temptation were it not for the fact that God won't allow us to be tempted beyond what we can handle. I don't know about you, but for me, that's an amazingly significant aspect. Because those times, and, and, and I'm sure there are people sitting here right now, those times when it seems like the temptation is just too much, that we just can't deal with what it is, we have the absolute confidence that God has said, but I won't allow you to be tempted beyond which you are capable of withstanding it. That is an encouragement to me. Next one, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 to 29. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring To nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. I gotta tell you, that's not how I would have done it. Okay? I I wouldn't have taken the foolish things, the base things of the world, to be how I showed who I was as God. I don't know about you. I'd have taken the smartest, best, wealthiest, most influential and said, hey, if we can just have them be on our team, look at all the people that will be really enticed to join our team, right? Isn't that what it is? How often have you heard people talk about uh, celebrity transformations or celebrity salvations? Most times, you find they don't last very long. Okay. Um, what is the reason that they do that? And I'm going to bring it up to today. This last week, and I don't remember whether it was somebody from Babylon B or something. Somebody interviewed Elon Musk. You know, because the the conservative churches. Is certainly in favor of him now that he's bought Twitter. And, um, and and so they they tried to convince, you know, asked him, you know, you, you ever thought about being a, a believer? Why do they do that? I mean, hopefully their motivation was they wanted to see someone come to Christ. But what is the real reason? We do it because we say, ah, here's the wealthiest guy in the world. If if we can just get him to say he's a believer, won't that be impressive? To people. But it says that uh, God chose the foolish things to shame the wise. Why? So no one could boast. He said the greatest ones among you are the ones that are going to be your servant. That's convoluted, right? I mean, that, that doesn't fit with our American dream, but God decided that that was absolutely the way. And there's a basis behind that. The basis behind it is that makes us understand and appreciate our need for grace. Have you ever met anybody who, when you asked them how they became a believer, said, well, what I did was I I made a spreadsheet, okay? And I listed all of the advantages of each one of the different religions, and I came to the conclusion that the one that scored the highest was Christianity. So I just decided, you know, I'm going to make the wisest choice available, and this is what I'm going to... You ever meet anybody like that? I've never met a single person like that. I've frequently met people who talked about how they were broken. How they became painfully aware of their sins. And then realized that only through their brokenness could they achieve a right relationship with God. Next one we're going to look at is uh, Matthew 19, verses 23 to 26. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. I'm not exactly sure what's going on in your life right now. I'm not always necessarily sure what's even going on in my own But I certainly don't have a handle on on the difficulties that the people sitting here are going through. But with God, all things are possible. Your marriage falling apart? With God, it's possible to put it back together. You're worried about where the next dollar is going to come from? With God, it's possible. You have a, a, a child that you just have heartache over? With God, it's possible. For believers, that ought to be the most significant um, help for us when we reach those difficult times of realizing the very God who made everything cares enough about us that it's possible with him. Genesis 50, verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You're familiar with this story, okay? This is Joseph. And this is now when his brothers have come back to him X number of years later, and what if that was you? What if as a young boy with your wonderfully radiant coat that your father who loved you had given you, your brothers take the coat from you, throw you in a well, sell you off to slave owners, and slave you, settle you into slavery in a foreign country, and you are now lost and forgotten. Most of us would say, I think I'd be relatively justified if I was pretty ticked at my brothers. Okay? Okay? What's it What's Joseph's attitude? He says, "You guys meant this to be my death." But God had a different purpose in this. He intended to bring about good through the evil which you intended. um Another real familiar one for most of us is Romans 5, verses 7 and 8. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were active enemies of God. He sent his son to die on a cross not because we had done something good, not because we had a spreadsheet that we wanted to follow, not because we had these grandiose concepts of what we were going to do for God. He while we were sinners, while we were his enemies, that's when Christ died for us. That is amazing. Staying in Romans in uh, chapter 6, verse 23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God. God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. When as elders, we get a chance to interview prospective members, we ask them to take 60 seconds and uh, lay out the gospel for us. And it's amazing. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful experience. But it's amazing how often... People will, in one form or another, use this verse. And that is that God requires death for sin. He, he doesn't require an indulgence, He doesn't require a sacrifice, He doesn't require giving money. He says, if you sin, death is necessary. And I don't know about you, but um, before my earliest recollections, memory-wise, I was already sinning. And so with us being born into sin, death was required of us. For our sins. We're fortunate that he provided a method out of that for us. But now, halfway into the time or more, we're going to come back to our Ephesians passage. So this time I am going to read it. So thinking about those things, listen to the passage again. in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And specifically, where I'd like us to camp out for a few minutes here, is in verses 4 through 7. So listen to them again. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. I think that's the part of this passage that I'd really like us to concentrate on and to think about. So we'll come back to those uh, those possibilities that I started out with. What does it mean to be dead in your trespasses and sins? Okay, I, at the elders meeting yesterday, I, I told them... Uh, have to back up, in, in Jeff's class, when he talked about you always have to see the end of a movie, uh, Barbara told him, not Dan, he, he, he just doesn't watch the ends of movies, he, he'll leave two-thirds of the way through, it doesn't bother him at all. But this week, I watched a movie, Barbara is gone, so I was a little bit bored, so I watched a movie, and some of you are going to know what movie I watched, I watched Princess Bride. <laughs> okay? Do you remember where Billy Crystal, whatever his name is in the movie, Billy Crystal is the, 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 the medicine guy, and they bring his friend to him and he says he's not dead, he's mostly dead. Okay, That's not what this passage is talking about. It's not talking about being mostly dead. Now, I'm going to pick on, on certain concepts here. But much of Christendom functions under a term which is called semi-Pelagianism. Okay? Semi-Pelagianism, boiled down simply, says there's a spark of good in man, and he reaches out towards God, and that's how the transaction happens between God and man. But if you read this verse even when we were dead in our trespasses. It doesn't say we were really sick, and it doesn't say that we were not functioning very well with it. It says we were dead. And it's overused in in sermons frequently. But what can a dead person do? They can do nothing. But we were absolutely dead in our trespasses and sins. And in that dead state, it says that we were followers of the prince, of Satan. Not me. Not you. I, I'd never... Prior to our salvation, we were minions of Satan. We were enemies of God. The passage tells us that that's the case. It says you were. Not till a couple of you were, and, and isn't it nice that you got saved? But we were all in our sins, followers of Satan. Then, what happens once through the regeneration process we get saved? It tells us we are seated. With Christ, if that doesn't make a difference in our lives, nothing will. We find ourselves with direct access through Christ Jesus to God the Father. That is an amazing transformation which leads to what I said was the biggie for the, pac- for the passage, which is, you are saved by grace so that nobody can boast. Think about your own experience. It, it wasn't because you worked at it so hard. When I have uh, queried people about that, The most frequent response I get from people is, well, I tell you what, he came and just hit me over the head. And frequently, at a really low point in my life, I finally understood what it meant that Christ died for my sins. And he came and got me, rather than me striving to get to him. So we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive. You know, we're about to celebrate communion. And uh, that celebration is about being made Alive through what Christ did. As we begin the process of thinking about the communion table, about thinking about the significance of what it means that Christ's body was broken for us, that his blood was shed for us, even though he did all of that for us while we were still dead in our trespasses and sins. You know, what a comforting thought for us as believers, that these two little three-letter words make all the difference in the world. But even more significant, not that they just make all the difference in the world. These two little words make all the difference for eternity an eternity which he has provided for us through no merit of ours at all. Let's pray. Father, we just are absolutely amazed that you have chosen because of nothing in us to provide us with new life, to save us, to make us joint heirs with your Son. Father, help us to appreciate the significance that while we were your enemies, you dared to die even for us. And we thank you for that in your Son's name. Amen. Amen.